That was, that was great. If you'll turn your Bible with me to Luke chapter 29. Come on, laugh with me. Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 16. I'm going to do, just to give you a touch of background before we jump into this text, and, and you should have a place for sermon notes, and I hope that we're going to talk today about engaging your heart in the means of grace so that you grow spiritually, and part of that is engaging as God speaks to you through the preached word, and so one of the ways we do that is you, you grab a crayon, grab a pen, grab your wife's lipstick, and you take notes, whatever you need to. Isaiah lived some 700 years or so before Jesus, and he lived in the city of Jerusalem. God called him to a vision in Isaiah 6, where we see it, to speak to the southern tribe. This is the divided kingdom, the northern tribe and the southern tribe. He's speaking to the southern tribe of Israel. Now, these were very uncertain and wicked times. King Uzziah the righteous dies in about 745 B.C., leaving Hezekiah, his son, in in quite a predicament, quite a pinch, because they were almost at this time a vassal state to the giant Assyria, paying huge tribute to them. Hezekiah decides to stop his payment to King Sennacherib, causing Assyria to come and attack. Now, following Hezekiah was his son Manasseh. Manasseh offered his own children as sacrifices to the gods of the nations. These were the days of the prophet Isaiah calling a hard-hearted people to repentance and to remember the covenant that they had made with their God. Now, in the, in the midst of this call to the repentance and rebellion of Israel, Isaiah presents to us a figure. And this figure becomes clearer and clearer as the book goes on. He's given royal titles like the Prince of Peace. He's coming from the family of King David himself. Isaiah tells us he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, a new king, a Messiah, or which means anointed one. But then in the backside of his book, he describes another figure, a servant, a suffering servant, persecuted and killed, raised and glorified who came to bring justice to the nations. And what we begin to realize is as we read it, that they are one and the same. An anointed king is coming who will suffer and die for the sins of mankind in the midst of tragedy. God has a plan 700 years or so before the Messiah. Now, this morning we're reading from verse 13 down to around verse 16. So if you would, please read with me. Chapter 29 of Isaiah. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and heart with me and honor me with their lips, or their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of the discerning men shall be hidden. 
Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Let's pray for our time this morning. God, we praise you that you are a God of the heart. Lord, we praise you that you are a God that you transform us from the inside out. We praise you that Christ the Messiah, from the beginning, the plan was from the foundations of the world that he would come to save your people. And yet, the saving wouldn't be calling, Lord, to a stricter, more stringent set of rules, but it would be transforming the heart by Christ himself dwelling in us. God, we praise you. And every believer here today knows what the new birth is. God, we know what it means to have Christ in us, the hope of glory, calling us, wooing us. We know what it is to enjoy worship. We know that it is to have a spiritual life that loves the Lord and our neighbor. And at the same time, we know what it is to have times and seasons where our hearts are hard. Times and seasons where we feel like we're in the desert. Times and seasons where we're thirsty and tired and exhausted, crying out, Lord, refresh my heart. God, we ask that you would work today through your word that our hearts might be more engaged in the means of grace and come alive with worship and adoration. You would receive greater exaltation in our church and we would receive greater joy in worship, communion, and fellowship with you. Use your preached word today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. My friends, your heart is like a garden which needs constant care and attention to really flourish, to really flower, and to produce fruit. We had some good friends in a city that we used to live in years ago, and they had this beautiful mini-farm or lifestyle block, whatever you want to call it. And on Sunday afternoons, they would invite lots of believers over. They'd have 30 or 40 people over so often. And it was the best Sunday afternoon. You'd go there, and they'd have a great spread of food. You'd sit and picnic on their lawns, which looked like golf greens. And they had amazing flowers, something always aromatic in their garden, something always blooming. Seemed like there was always some fruit to eat. And we'd play croquet. The kids would throw the football, throw the frisbee, go pick fruit. You kind of felt like you were in the Garden of Eden when you were there. But that didn't just grow. You see the wife would take out several mornings a week to work the garden. She would put on her gloves, and she would go to work. She would pull weeds. She would turn over the compost pile, put in new compost. She would mow her lawns, and not just with one of those big mowers, but those little hand things, you know? She would trim the edges and the hedges, and on Saturdays, they would get together and tackle big projects. And the result was beauty, fruit, life in their garden, a place that you wanted to come. Isaiah 29 describes Judah as a people 
who draw near to God with their words, but their hearts are distant. Their hearts are very much like an unkept, untidy, awful garden, you might say, that has not been cared for and has not been worked. It's in disarray. They hide deep and far away from God's truths, so much so that they now imagine that they are the potter, and God now is the clay of their own making. He is whatever they want him to be. And now to them, God has no understanding of their lives. He doesn't know their needs. He doesn't know their trials. He doesn't know them. And Isaiah is saying, saving faith, my friends, lies in the heart. True saving faith has taken hold of your heart only as much as it has affected your life. If your faith has little to no effect on your life, what you desire to do every day, how you live, how you behave to those who really know you, then Christ has not taken hold of your heart. Now, in our culture, the belt buckle of the Bible belt, there are multitudes who hear the gospel message preached on a regular basis. They love to talk about the things of God. The difference in what the churches believe. Do you immerse? Do you pour water? Do you sprinkle? Yet, it does not affect them and how they live or what they love. They remain as before faith because their heart and desires have never changed. Scripture has always placed true saving faith in the heart, radically changing even calling us as born again so much change from the inside out. But even for the true believer, we can sit under the most gracious preaching, listen to the best teachers on podcasts, read Scripture on a daily basis and pray, yet it seems that our heart sometimes does not grow in the graces of love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And we cry out, why? I'm going through all the motions. And the answer is, because God's means to give you grace work and are alive when you are engaging and keeping your heart in them. So it's how you read the Word, applying it to yourself. How you pray, wanting to really listen to God and sitting and waiting on Him. How you take the Lord's Supper with thanksgiving that Christ was broken for me and repentance of your own sins. So that you are using God's means of grace to maintain sweet communion with God. Not just go through the religious motions of honoring God with our mouth while our heart is far from Him. So the main idea today is we must keep a constant jealousy over the heart. Listen, brothers, sisters, you must keep a constant, abiding jealousy over your own hearts. Now, several things Isaiah describes happening when we serve God only with our mouths, our religion, but our hearts are far from Him. We're going to look at three of them. 
You say, why three? Because pastors like to do things in threes. So here's the first. Point one. Your faith is built on religion, not relationship. So what happens when your heart is far from the Lord? Your faith then is built on religion, not relationship. Verse 13. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Notice his words, they draw near with mouths and lips. <laughs> so they are performing religious services, right? With their mouths and lips. And it means everything that they're doing for God is merely verbal. They're keeping up all the externals of the faith. They're going to all the feasts. They're going to worship on the Sabbath. They're praying all the prayers that they're supposed to be praying. And they think that this outward form of worship is sufficient for God. They're not at all concerned with the direction of their hearts. And so they have the correct sacrifices, but not a heart that really loves God. And notice what it says in the scriptures about their hearts. While their hearts are far from me. Do you see that there? Sometimes we've been taught that the God of the Old Testament is all about the law. The God of the New Testament is all about the heart. That's absolute rubbish. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. True faith has always been in the heart, which means in the desires, in the affections, And what is lacking here is a heart that is submitted to God's will. A heart that desires to love and obey God. And the mouth is just an expression of what's in the heart. It's not separate. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth and the hands reveal what's really going on in the heart. So the heart is the treasury And the hands and the mouth execute the heart's will. Does that make sense? So that behind every behavior is the heart. Is the heart. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, says it like this. Nothing is a more true fact than that the things of Christianity take hold of men's souls no further than they affect their behavior. The things of the gospel take hold of your life no further than they affect your behavior. So what he's saying there is if the gospel has little or no effect on your life, on your behavior, then it certainly has not taken hold of your heart. And what you're left with is religion, not a living relationship with God through the Spirit. So that even their fear of God was external. Look at your Bibles once more. Notice how he says that. And their fear of me is only a commandment taught by men. So outwardly it appeared they were in awe of God, but it was just another commandment that they were trying to follow. Not because their hearts were truly in awe of an awesome God or loved Him. With their words they say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But their actions, their behavior, showed that they actually had no fear of the Lord. There was a man who had a terrible abdominal pain. Let me try that word again. Abdominal pain. 
And so he went to his doctor. His doctor were not like the doctors in this church who were really good doctors. This doctor was a below-average doctor. And so he went there and he said, uh, Dr. Smith, I, I'm having this abdominal pain. And so the doctor inspected him and he said, you've got cancer. And he said, what we'll do is we're going to give you a morphine shot and I want you to come into my office once a week and we're going to give you another morphine shot and that'll fix it up. And so the man came into his office once a week and they gave him morphine and he felt great until he passed away about six months later. Now, is there something wrong with that? Well, yeah, it's criminal because he is only dealing with the symptoms, the pain. He must track the symptoms to lead and destroy the disease, the roots, the heart, what's truly going on there. You see, my friends, so external religion only deals with the symptoms and the behaviors at best, but they never deal with the true problem of a broken and sinful heart. Now, I want to apply this quickly to a non-believer and a believer. For the non-Christian, the heart is closed to God in two great ways that the gospel changes. First, in the understanding of the knowledge of God, it's been lost. There, there is no knowledge, no knowing, no understanding of God. And secondly, sin has hardened the heart so that without God's grace, it has no desire to love and obey Him. Both of these, God sent the Messiah, Christ, to remedy. First, the Spirit works in us, revealing a knowledge of who God is, and then the Holy Spirit literally comes in us and gives us a new heart, according to Scripture, which means new desires in us. Now, for the believer, sometimes we struggle with a heart that seems to be dead to desiring to worship. And if you've been walking with God for a season, you know this. You've experienced this. So, how do you have a jealousy over your heart? Well, my friends, I would say we need to put the same exercise into our relationship with God that we put into our physical bodies. If our bodies have been dieted the way our hearts have sometimes, then we might be dead. We can never expect our hearts and desires to change until we are committed to keeping it alive through engaging it with Christ, to feeding it the fountain of life. And we do that with personal worshiping. So in a nutshell... Don't diet your heart. Don't diet yourself spiritually. Have a jealousy for your heart the same way you do for your body. And you do that with pursuing Christ in personal times of worship and corporate times of worship as well. Here's point two. Point two. The second thing that Isaiah describes when we serve God with only our mouths and not our hearts, the result of that is, point two, we try to hide our hearts from God. Verse 15, if you'll look there with me in your Bibles. Verse 15. Uh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel. 
whose deeds are in the dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us. Stop there. When Christianity has become just external, you're just going to church, tithing, going through the motions, you will seek to hide your real life from God and from others. You will keep your actions in the dark from the elders of your church, from your spouse, from your parents, from your friends, every time. The reason is we believe a lie. Sin will tell you a great lie that you will begin to believe. Verse 15, who sees us? Who knows us? Your heart will convince you that you have been successful. No one sees what you're doing in the dark. No one knows what you're doing. And besides, it's not hurting anyone. I'm still going through the motions. I'm still going to church. No one knows. When we think we can hide things from God, we have turned things upside down. So God is the clay of our making. When we serve God only with our mouths and not our hearts, that's the third point. You believe God is your servant rather than you being his. Point three. Look at verse 16 with me in your Bibles. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it? He has no understanding. When your faith is only external, you're not a born-again believer. There's not a born-again heart full of the Spirit. You will continue the same religious activity. Hide your real life. And in your mind, God has become your servant. You are now free from being His servant. In order to justify a lifestyle that is contrary to God's will... We have to deny God's right to tell me how to live. Notice how Isaiah says it. The potter, God, is regarded as the clay. God becomes what suits me. I make him into what my sins demand and my lifestyle demands he must be. And people go out of evangelical churches left and right to the more liberal churches, as they become the potter and God is now the clay, they have remade him into one who approves of any lifestyle and that only requires external religion, never challenging their heart, and they will find a church environment that stamps that as okay. That is when we become the potter and God becomes the clay of our making. Finally, We justify ourselves and accuse God of having no understanding of my situation, as Isaiah says, or what I am going through. God knows nothing, and I know everything. God has become the clay, and I am the potter. When the heart is hard, and it's nothing but external religion. Paul David Tripp says it like this, People must see that their behavior reveals more about their own hearts than it does about the difficulties of their situation. You have to understand that your behavior reveals more about your heart than about your difficulties. 
So we must keep a constant jealousy over our hearts. Three things that happen when you don't. Your faith becomes religion, not relationship. Second, we try to hide our hearts from God. Third, you believe God is your servant rather than you are his. You become the potter. He becomes the clay of your making. How do we think and live this? How do we take this from our heads to our heart? And we're just going to close with one or two thoughts. To truly keep your hearts engaged with Christ, you need to know love of Christ, worship of Christ, engaging your heart is never wasted. Do you, my friends, feel like things for Christ are wasted? Please listen. Do you feel like the things for God are wasted because they could have been used for you, for your family, for your friends? So tithes are just wasted money. Wednesday night small group is wasted time. I could have been mowing the yard. Keeping the Sabbath on Sunday and coming to worship is a wasted day. I could have been working or I could have stayed an extra day hunting or fishing or gone and stayed in Tuscaloosa or Troy or whatever. Now, why is all that time not wasted but incredibly valuable? Proverbs 4.23 says this, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it comes the springs of life. The answer is, because all that we just mentioned is heart work. Let me explain. Before we are converted, we oppose God and are self-dependent. What rules our life is self-love and self-seeking. But when we receive Christ and are born again, He renovates your life your soul, into the image of God so that self-dependent is replaced by faith in Christ. No longer is it you dependent upon you. It's you dependent upon Christ, isn't it? Self-love is replaced by love of God now and love of our neighbor. Self-will is now surrendered, not my will, but God's will. Self-seeking becomes self-denial. Now, the most difficult thing with conversion, someone becoming a Christian, is to actually win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after we become Christians is to keep the heart engaged with God. This is why worship, serving, praying, reading the Word, listening to sermons, sometimes don't affect us. But when we apply them to ourselves, through thanksgiving and repentance, through praise, through self-examination, through listening to God, through asking the Spirit to work, the life, the heart, begin to have a new victory over darkness, and it comes alive with the flowers of God's grace. Grace in you comes from grace outside of you. It comes from Christ. So here's my last thoughts there. Don't allow the enemy to fool you. Love for Christ is never wasted. Time with Christ is never wasted. Time in worship 
It's just the opposite. It's what you need most. It is the most productive time in your life and will lead you towards a heart that is full of new desires for God and new abilities to do His will and know His love. Now, last thing. The promise of the Messiah. Look at verse 14 and we'll just finish here. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. (laughs) I love this. Notice the people he's talking about are those with a hard heart. Those who love their religion. And God is saying, I'm not done with you. I will again do wonderful things for you. Do you know what those wonderful things are? He's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send a Savior. One who came down, the very Son of God to live a perfect life and to die as a sacrifice for our sins, to raise or be risen from the grave to prove that we are truly forgiven. It is finished. But then his work is to come to the religious, to come to those whose hearts are far from him and save them and to give them a new heart, a new desire from God. That is wonder upon wonder. And then for the believer, he comes to us in the stony seasons. He comes to us in the hard seasons. And as we worship, as we commune with him, he refreshes our hearts and our desires and changes us as our Savior. Wonder upon wonder through the work of the Messiah. Amen? Father, thank you so much. I love, God, I love how you say they're hard-hearted. They're only committed to the externals. Yet wonder upon wonder, God's going to do something. He's not done with the hard-hearted. Lord, I praise you. There's no one whose heart is so hard, so far away, that Christ the Messiah cannot save them and change them lord and there's no believer who's not struggling to such an extent that christ the savior the messiah cannot come to them and bring a true repentance and a turning back god i pray for any believer here today whose heart might be hard maybe they've just been going through the motions for a long time God, I pray that we would cry out to you, Lord, and that you would work in our life wonder upon wonder. Refresh us, change us, transform us to be more like our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.